0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Very excited today because I have with me Lindsay Davis, who's a much-published author writing historical fiction, Uh, and she's here to talk to us about her new book, which is the ninth book in the Flavia Albia series. Hello, Lindsay. Hello. I'm very much looking forward to this because you've uh, created a very unique character, haven't you?
2: I think I have.
1: Yes, indeed. We'll get to that in a second. Um, So tell us about her. uh, Tell us about the previous books. This is number nine. And who is
2: Flavia? Well, before Flavia, there were 20 books that I wrote um, about her father, the legendary Marcus Didius Falco, um, which... I started, the first one was published in 1989, so I'm, I'm somewhat feeling like an old lady as I relate this story to you. Um I wrote them one a year for 20 years, and then I thought I wanted to have a change. So first I wrote um a completely different Roman sort of novel, which was about the reign of the Emperor Domitian. And then when it was clear that my readers and publishers desperately wanted more Falco, I gave them not more Falco because I really felt I'd done enough with that. But I started a new series about his adopted daughter who has been found in Britain. So she has a slightly mixed heritage. I think when I started in nineteen in the 1980s, there was so much to do with fiction about the ancient world. It mm-hmm. wasn't anywhere near as common as it has become. And I had to explain so much about the Roman world that to have added in a female protagonist at that time would have been one step too far. Mm-hmm. really. Because um, one of the questions I'm sure you're going to ask me is, could a woman really do her job? But that's what I'm setting out to show. So, so nine books ago, and in fact nine and a half books to, to go, because I'm half, halfway through the next one, I set out to write this new series with a slightly different slant and set 12 years after the previous series had ended. So we've changed from good Emperor Vespasian, who built the Colosseum and made Rome prosperous, to his evil, paranoid tyrant son Domitian, who is wonderful fun to write about actually. It's brilliant
1: like we were talking about whether to introduce you as a historian or historian author or author beforehand and you said that you don't class yourself as a historian in the strict sense of the word but you've spent nigh on well, more than 30 years, 30 years. writing yeah. about ancient Rome. What, what made you want to spend your writing life in ancient Rome?
2: I didn't really think about it I just wanted to find something that nobody else was doing which now you couldn't say, but then you could say. Um, cause I thought you had to be original and I, I had run away from my job as a civil servant and needed, needed to do something with my life and thought I, I'd reached a point in life where I would try to be a writer. Um, my, my academic background is English in English language and literature,
0: yeah. both
2: parts. I'm, I, I think both parts are useful to a writer. And, and so I don't, I don't push the fact that I've wandered into the realms of historians and classicists and even archaeologists. Mm-hmm. I just get on with what I do and wait for them to notice that actually I'm not making a bad fist of it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because you do get, um, as a historian who has done some fiction, I find I very much can't let go sometimes. Maybe you find it easier to let go and say, like, this is, fiction it's okay not to be completely as long as it's possible it doesn't have to be probable
2: exactly um and if if something is not known I feel free to use intelligent guesswork Mm. I I don't think there's any point writing historical novels unless you try to make them as authentic to what what we think we know Mm. as possible otherwise you might you might just as well do fantasy
1: this is brilliant, and uh, so in with, with that in mind, she does have a unique role in your ancient world doesn't she Flavia she, so does. she
2: does she she's the same as her father she's what was called an informer um there were there were two kinds as far as I can see, one of them hid behind pillars and tried to find out things from bad motives. They would would try to get people um, convicted, often wrongly, so that they could earn money. And the emperors, bad emperors, could earn money from prosecuting people. Um, And so they had a terrible reputation, which is always good, because if you're writing a detective series, you want your person, whether it's man or woman, to look slightly seedy and downtrodden and despised by the public so so that was a really good start and then then they had other informers who just sort of delivered subpoenas and did legal work like that so when when they're pushed for cash my my two can do that but it's boring so I don't write about it Mm. so she has
1: had a traditional role in that she has been married hasn't she your character
2: she, she has been married, um, very briefly. I didn't want to write about her at the point when I left her in the end of the Falco series. She was only 17 mm. and I didn't, I didn't want to write about a teenager or someone who was learning the job. So I moved her on till she's, she's almost 30, which by coincidence was how old Falco was when I started to write about him. Um, and then, then I had to fill in the life that she led, and I, I, I was going to give her a a very suitable gent to be her partner, but I didn't want her to have spent 30 years not, not having had any sort of life. So she has, as a young girl, she's been married to a character we know from the Falco stories, who is Lentulus, the dimmest recruit in the Roman army. <laughs> the joke about Lentulus is that if he saw big hole with a notice saying danger beware big hole you'd go across to have a look and fall in and <laughs> he's he's I thought she'd probably outgrow Lentilus, so I had to kill him off and he's killed off in a very lentiless sort of accident where um, they're building the Colosseum. they have put up the central ceremonial arch and they're adding a a quadriga with four pawing horses to the top and a leg falls off one of the horses and Lentilus stands there going oh look a leg's fallen off and it hits him and kills him (laughs) which is just what absolutely would happen to him my character who I invented of course um, so so she's moved on. She's a widow. She's experienced life. She's not been entirely unhappy. I think their marriage was probably a good marriage, though, short. And she's learned her job. Um, but when we first meet her, she damn well knows what she's doing and isn't going to stand any nonsense from anybody else. Um, and part of my way of writing her is to show that although textbooks Slight sneer on face here imply that all women in the Roman world were simply ciphers because they had no legal identity. My feeling is that if you look at things like tombstones in most of the world that isn't senatorial or imperial, the unit was the family and the unit was the husband and wife partnership and they worked together as throughout history, in many situations, the family did have to work, children as well, to mm-hmm. to all pull together and, and keep things going. Uh, and so she holds down the job. She's been taught by her father, who's a man, but she, she knows how to do it. And, and part of the flavour of the books is to show situations where a man would have it a lot easier. Like if she has to go and see the police, they despise her and she has to each time she goes to a different cohort, she's got to make her way and make them trust her and make them willing to work with her. So, so that's part of the fun of it. Tell us about the setup in terms of policing in ancient Rome. You've got your Praetorian guards at the top who look after the emperor you've got your urban cohorts whose job is to suppress riots and then you've got the chaps who really do the work in Rome and they are basically they're the fire brigade um they were set up by the emperor Augustus to to stop massive fires in Rome which at the time um was partly built of wood though he claimed he made it marble and Every kind of cooking and lighting was naked flames. So they were were very subject to feckless people setting their houses on fire and then it spreading like mad. So he set up seven cohorts to look after two districts each. And as they went around the streets sniffing for smoke, they kept running into burglars and people because it was dark when they did their sniffing for smoke. And so they gradually became the police force as well. That's really interesting.
1: I'd never even considered whether, because obviously we don't really have a police force as we recognise one now in Britain until the 1800s, do we? So No, we don't.
2: No. No. Uh, um, and even the fire brigade was, when it was first set up in our country, was, was sort of a commercial enterprise rather than a civic organisation. Is there any evidence
1: remaining of ancient cases
2: for you to take your um, stories from? Hardly any. Um, in in the very first Albia story, I had found a historical reference to people running around the streets and stabbing people at random with poison needles. So that that sort of got evidence, and and nothing is said about who it actually was. So I'm free to have Albia solve it, but but more often I'm inventing a crime. I try to invent a crime that could actually have happened in ancient Rome. But that, that leaves us with human nature, which leaves us with serial killers and domestic murders. Uh, there always have to be murders. Yeah. I suppose, suppose as well, human nature doesn't change, does it? So no, no, the motivation is always going to be greed or sex or just losing your temper when you're drunk and Mm. that. That works as well 2000 years ago as it would do here. I, I have made a joke that the the earliest known murder case, of course, happened in Rome and it was Romulus killing his brother Remus. So yeah. <laughs> um, there's, there's precedent going back a very long way. There is.
1: We've mentioned this already and you said you knew that I'd ask you this. How likely is it that there could have been a woman doing this job in ancient Rome?
2: I personally think, why not? Mm. We we know that there were women who in their own right had jobs. Um, My very first book I wrote about Vespasian's mistress, who was a secretary. Um, Never thought I'd write about a secretary. My mum would be upset by that idea. And I've written about a hairdresser. Those are jobs you would expect women to have, but why shouldn't they? have other sorts of jobs if they've, they've got the skills. And with Albia, I, I like to show the kind of skill she has to use dealing with people, working things out, going to libraries and looking things up.
1: This is what I like about her. I suppose to be in this job in ancient Rome, she's got to have a bit about her. I, I love how outspoken she is. This <laughs> like yes.
2: takes no crap, does she? Uh, no, no, she doesn't. I've I've made her... I think, very British in that. (laughs) (laughs) So the
1: book kicks off with a murder of a figurine seller that Flavia discovers with her two nephews that she has adopted. Um, It's quite a detailed moment. And I know that Alina Mm. liked how shocking it was. It was a little shocking, she said in her way. It it surprised her. Do you purposely try, and I I suppose like it's not even breaking the mould. I mean, in a way, you've created the mould for this ancient fiction, haven't you?
2: uh yes but uh a murder story is a murder story you always have the discovery of the body and and i'm now on my 30th murder story so i don't want it every time to be the same mm. this this was if it's a murder i'll just throw that at you um it's it's shocking partly because she's got two very young children with her when she discovers it. Mm. And they're they're on a sort of Christmas present buying mission. So the situation is shocking. Um, There's blood. Apparently there's blood, which, again, is always shocking. Um, And she has to decide what to do in an alien place with two little boys who don't understand quite what's going on. Um, So that gives it an extra slant.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: I know that Alina is obsessed with um, Roman festivals and parties. And it, as right. you just mentioned, this book is set during the Festival of Saturnalia as well. Did you enjoy the research that goes with I that? Did terms of finding out all about tell everybody about this festival and why it was so cool to set it then
2: um this is actually the second time i've done saturnalia because it is just so wonderful to write about it's the forerunner of christmas without the baby in the cradle though i i have a joke in this particular albia story where her maid has heard a story about a baby having been put in a manger in a cradle somewhere and they've they both agree that would be deeply unhygienic and, and isn't <laughs> considered. Um, everything else that happened at Saturnalia, we have taken over. So they're going to buy little figures, but they're the predecessor of Christmas presents. Mm. Um, there are lights. There are decorations in the house, which goes horribly wrong, of course. Um, Everybody goes to a lot of parties and eats and drinks too much. There is absolutely disgusting drinking going on in the streets and everywhere you go. So it's like actually very modern version of Christmas, not, not Victorian. Um, and, and it, it is a lot of fun to write about. He gives a very colourful background. And then of course, there's two things. One is the emperor to show he's, he's wonderful and benign gives a huge party, which is one that was described in a Latin author, um, a Latin author I despise. So that's fun. Um, and then it's a good contrast that part of my story is very dark because there's a sort of mafia gangster element, which I have from time to time. Um, so you get you get a really good contrast. How um, prevalent
1: is organised crime as we think of it in ancient Rome? We think it probably
2: existed, Mm. Um, they they certainly had crime. Um, whether whether I'm elaborating too much, I don't know. It's fiction. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't have to be right, does it? I yeah, it doesn't have to be right. And I've I've always found things that could be used by organised criminals. And in this one, we have the nuts that are thrown at Saturnalia and and the gangsters are trying to muscle in um on the people who've traditionally sold the nuts in a way that's like the ice cream wars in Glasgow a few years ago <laughs> um their methods are the same horribly brutal um and and their goods their nuts are are not very good nuts so there's a lot of poorly tummies in this book
1: she doesn't have children does she but she has adopted children is that normal in ancient Rome to their parent they've not lost both parents have they no they've,
0: they've
2: only lost their her. mother yeah their, their their mother was the sister uh of her partner now husband Tiberius mm. um it was actually, they didn't have the same attitude to adoption that we have. People mm. were adopted much more frequently. If if a family didn't have an heir, for example, they'd just find somebody of a suitable status that they got on with and adopt him. Um, and and then they the adopted person would just take extra names. So you can have people who, as well as having three Roman names, have three more Roman names, which is slightly excessive, I think. They they didn't have the feeling about blood ties that we have got, and I think DNA has just exaggerated our feeling that you've got to absolutely know who you are. There's a lot of a point because it happens in Ben Hur with my reference. It does. Time, yes. it, where it's like, yes. oh, I like you. You're my heir now. Yes, and that that's just how it would be the Emperor Augustus was allegedly adopted by Julius Caesar. He was his great nephew. So you could adopt somebody you were vaguely related to. Um, at at the stage we're at, it's not a formal adoption with hmm. um, Albion and Tiberius because they've got to tread carefully in view of the fact the father is still alive. Um, but we know how it's going to end up. Hmm. And why have I done that? Because... If you're writing about a woman, it's very awkward if she gets pregnant and she's trying to do a job where she's got to be out and about. I found that with Falco and his wife, Helena, that when Helena had her two, in fact, three pregnancies, it, it was much more difficult for her and for me writing about her. So um, I don't know whether Albia ever will have her own children. I, I don't want to deny them the chance absolutely but at, at the moment I, I still feel even nine books in that I've only just started
0: yeah so I don't <laughs> want to
2: start on that yeah
1: you found a new character like to fall in love with like you say you just get to a point yeah. that you just knew you were done with Falco
2: yes and I I just knew that Albia would work the thing that astonished me for several years was that readers of Falco didn't want to know they they were very upset that I'd left him because they'd had him for 20 years and he was a very attractive character and there were some who actually said they they refused to read Albia and then (laughs) as they as they did because I dug my heels in and I refused to give them Falco so that was all they got they they actually ended up saying oh quite like her oh possibly like her even more than him right good that's
1: what you want um, That's what yeah. you are. All that stuff about having worked in the service industry for many, many years, all that stuff about the customer being always right is rubbish. Quite. Right. <laughs> Alina, so Alina's devastated she's not on this, but she's been caught up in like Poland going into another major lockdown. But she's sent me the question she desperately wants me to include. And one of them right. she absolutely adored about the book, the detail when you talk about surroundings. So she says, uh, like the pub and the donkey, these are the two things she's picked out. Can um, oh, right. you run... Yeah. And- uh, so how how do you create that? Is it that all imagination? Or have you just built up such a wealth of understanding of ancient Rome doing all of these books that you can just see it in your head now?
2: I've only had one encounter with a donkey when I was three and it was on the sands at Blackpool and I cried and cried to be allowed a donkey ride and then the minute I was put on it I cried to be got off because I was so scared. So um, I, I use online resources a lot for things like that you can you can find a hell of a lot about animals um, in the one I'm writing now there's a, there's a lot about a rampaging bull and I I've been reading things like wrangler sites and for donkeys I found a very good website that was aimed at farmers in Kenya who <laughs> were going to be using donkeys as on, on their farms and that that was going to secure them a livelihood and so there was a lot of advice to them about how you look after a donkey Uh keep it healthy and make it feel loved and so that that has transformed itself into how we look after mercury oh that's pretty cool
1: I just so like you can mock the sad little aviation historians all you like that do the simulations. Um, But they're brilliant for me because uh, someone did one of a flying boat. So I now know what it's like to sit and in a flying boat when it takes off in World War One and what it does. And, yeah. and how it shakes and everything because some little nerd has sat there and done a whole That's animation funny. of it as if you're there. So it, it is remarkable what you find out there now, isn't it? it is indeed um what about the pub are you just going on the assumption
2: that pubs never really will change that much basically we 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 know what they look like because um pompeii and herculaneum of course and and other roman sites the streets are dominated by counters for fast food emporia of various sorts um and i just add to it The little I've learned from occasionally dropping into a drinking house of my own. All for research, of course. All for research, yes, indeed. I
1: did something Elodie Harp has just done with her Wolf's den, which I'm in the middle of reading because we just interviewed her as well. Um, And they all seem to be walking around Pompeii um, eating takeaway food
2: and they're in and out of bars all day long. Um, It's fantastic. Well, part of that is the fact that most people lived in very small accommodation. They didn't have a kitchen. This, yeah. this is the sort of thing that I try to draw to people's attention that it was, it was very rare to have your own kitchen. And even if you did, um, you wouldn't have a range cooker. You'd be on, on a little trivet messing about, mm-hmm. um, and risking, of course, setting your house on fire. So med- most people did eat out and many of them met in the street.
1: Yeah, I found I found that's really interesting when I was reading her book as well. That whole concept of it, there's and also as well one thing I keep banging on about it on history hack is the Roman uh, lack of affiliation with privacy. Yes, individual yeah. and they're uh, they're kind of the way they regard an individual as well as in like we very much now like this is my body, it's my my personal space, um, and they don't do that, do they?
2: Depends who you are. If you're a slave, you're a possession. You're not even a human being. If, if you're a citizen, you do have rights. You have rights, uh, such that you can't, you can't be taken into custody. You can't be chained because you are a free citizen. So in that sense, yes, but they, they didn't have the same regard for privacy, mainly I suspect because it simply wasn't available. So people went to the loo in giant lat- latrines. 16 seaters and didn't seem to mind and and i've also written about how quite often um in the family situation people made love with other people around and probably watching um, it, it's a different view p- from ours then you have to go with it
1: I was going to ask you what the most random source you've ever used is um for writing your books, because we've already talked about the donkey do tracking site. But um in terms of the, I'd like I say, you've done so many of them now. I suppose if this was me and I was going to write a, a first book about ancient Rome, I'd sit down with all the ancient Roman source material and writings I could find. Did you do that at the beginning? Do you not need to do
2: that now? I, I go back to it. I use the satirists and the historians mostly, especially the satirists. And I, I, I had some Latin in my, in my own background, though I found it very difficult. So when I need to, I do um, go to usually Penguin Classics. I don't read them in the original. It doesn't have to be too hard, does it? No, I don't think. I mean, I went to uni with this guy that would
1: write his medieval essays. He would put straw all over the floor in a monk's habit and write them by candlelight, and we all just thought he was weird. Right? Yeah. I- they-
2: Mm. Yes, I come (laughs) from a big manufacturing city, and I think your tools should be suited to the job. So I've always, from the moment you could get the PC, I've had a PC. Yeah,
1: outstanding. Uh, If you were going to go somewhere else other than ancient Rome, have you ever felt
2: inclined to go elsewhere in history? I think uh, somewhere like London in the 18th century, perhaps.
1: 18th century see my brain goes 19th I think I've like oh, the idea of right. that. but no, then that's no. very much stiffer isn't it I think people were having a lot more fun before the Victorians
2: and they were changing their attitude a lot in the 18th which I would be interested in. I have actually written about the English Civil War at vast length um that's but but that was horrible because it was a war so I wouldn't want to go to it. Oh, we should we
1: should have had Charlie on with us, who's another
2: one of our hosts,
1: who uh she's just sent me actually her draft. She's done a trilogy um about Barbara Villiers oh, uh, historical fiction. So I'm about to dive into that and help her get it ready. Uh tell everybody once more uh about the book. What's it called? Uh I know that Matt is gonna put it on our bookshop link as well, so people can go directly to it from
2: History Hack. Okay, I've got to remember which one I'm talking about. (laughs) It's called A Comedy of Terrors, which is um, a a reference to Shakespeare, but also to Vincent Price.
1: (laughs) Brilliant. Okay, so you can get that via our bookshop.org link, History Hacks page, which means that not only does Lindsay get lots of lovely sales for her book, but we get a cut as well. Thank you so much for coming on. Do come back when number 10 is ready. um, And we're looking forward to lots more. Flavia Albia novels. Okay. I'll be 83 if I do 20. That That's a good target. We like that. Then okay. maybe your fans will let you off and let you
2: retire then. No, 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 no. They won't. I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month, and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year.
2: When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org